Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Trials and difficulties and pain come in different forms. It can come in the form of some relational issues. Perhaps between a husband and a wife or parents and children or extended family, um, workplace. It, it can come in a certain way, relational pain and suffering and trial through that. Sometimes trials can and pain can come through physical ailments. And not only does it cause the physical pain, but it can cause other issues as well, and it can impact us even spiritually sometimes, especially when it seems to be ongoing. Other times we can have trials where it's things like material things, for example, you know, difficulties in finances, you know, difficulties not knowing whether you can keep your job and provide for your family. And still another way, trials and pain can come to, is when we have a certain longing, or maybe a godly longing for something, and it hasn't come to fruition and the pain and difficulty that it causes. If we live long enough in this life, we will all experience some form of pain and difficulty and trial. Yes, it comes in different forms and shapes, but we will all go through some kind of trial and difficulty and pain. And when we go through those trials and difficulties and pain, it is important for us to understand what is happening, the, the bigger picture of what is happening. It is important to understand what God is doing when we go through those difficulties. Sure, we might not know all the intricacies of why certain things happened. But we must understand that there is a purpose in which God has allowed these trials and difficulties in this life. And it can cause us to, you know, when, because if we don't have a right understanding of who God is and the place of suffering in God's economy and why pain and suffering comes into our lives. What should cause us to further depend on God and further be refined can cause us to be even more burdened and become cynical and angry and you know, towards God and towards others and so on. So it's important that we understand why 
these things happen in our life and how we are to respond and, and understand what God is doing in the midst of all this suffering and pain. You know, the chapter that we will look at in this morning in Genesis 40, it's a chapter that talks about the affliction that Joseph is in. We saw at the end of uh, last week, at the end of Genesis 39, that you know, jo- Joseph has been going through lots of difficulties, just one after another. And finally, he ends up in prison. And it's not now some new thing he's going to undergo or a new trial, but it's mostly the same difficulty that he's in, the same affliction that he is in, where he's in this prison. But it's just going on and going on. And what we see in this chapter is how we get a glimpse of what God is doing in and through that pain and suffering and affliction. And we get a glimpse of how Joseph is responding to that affliction or suffering that has come into his life. And it encourages us as well as to how we should then respond in light of all that Joseph is thinking and in light of all that Joseph is responding to in that trial. You know, the, in, the, in the narratival scheme of things, what is happening in this chapter is that God is working out his plans and promises. In the life of that nation of Israel that he's going to bring about, in the life of Joseph, in what he has promised Joseph, and he's bringing all that to pass. And in the grand scheme of things, he's moving forward his plan of redemption as well, where one day he will send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save sinners like you and me. But even as we see God working through it, I think the application, I trust, will be that we will see how we understand you know, the place of suffering and how it comes about ultimately, and God's purposes in it and how we are to respond as a result. And I pray that it would only cause us to cling on to our Lord more than become more cynical and angry towards him when we go through trials and difficulties and pain. Now, we don't know how long Joseph has been in prison in Egypt. But we know this. If you turn to, back to Genesis 37.2, it says that Joseph was 17 years old. And it was about that time he was sold as a slave by his brothers, and that was the time he came to Egypt. He was just 17 years old. And then in the next chapter we will see in Genesis 41 and verse 46 where he will be brought to serve Pharaoh and it says there that he is 30 years old. 
And in fact, at the start of Genesis 41.2, it says that after two years, meaning after, the, after two years of the events of Genesis 40, the events of Genesis 41 happens. So when you calculate all that, Joseph in Genesis 40 is about 28 years old. Eleven years have passed. You know, from the time when he was sold as a slave, and then he came into Potiphar's house, and then whatever time he has been in prison. So it's a long time that he's been there, and he's been in prison also at least for a few years. And we saw that whilst in prison at the end of Genesis 39, again, Joseph stood out from the rest of the inmates. Why? Because the the big theme in chapter 39 was that the Lord was with Joseph, and he had a keen sense of that. And so Joseph proved himself trustworthy and reliable and maybe even more orderly than all the other prisoners there. And, and I want you to think of this. You, you know, Joseph was put in charge of all the prisoners because the prison warden saw that something was different about Joseph. I mean, think about this. Any attempts at undermining the kingdom, any plots to overthrow the regime in, in Egypt, well, how is that going to happen? You have all these prisoners and you put one guy in charge of those prisoners. You want to be absolutely certain that this person is diligent and trustworthy and wise and uh, perhaps a person who could even... Uh, earned respect from other prisoners as well. You're not going to put an untrustworthy, unwise person in charge of, a, of the king's prison. And that's the kind of person Joseph was, and therefore he was put in charge of all the prisoners. And now the scene in Genesis 40 opens up. Verse 1. It says sometime after this. So, you know, time is passing. And the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. Let's just stop there for a moment. Now the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh, or any king for that matter, they held positions of great authority and responsibility. The cupbearer was a person who oversaw all that the king drank. And the baker, on the other hand, was the person who oversaw all that the king ate. And so people who wanted the king dead would often try to 
poison his food or drink. And so now you can understand why the cupbearer's role and the baker's role was so important to the king. They had to be extremely trusted people and they were given lots of power to make sure that what the king got was the best food and the best drink and also that it wasn't poisoned or tampered with. Uh, and so these men had lots of subordinates, you know, wh- where the grapes would be got and, and that fruit would be got and made juice off and whatever else. And the baker where the grains would come and how it was prepared, they would be in charge of a lot of people. They had a lot of authority, a lot of influence and a lot of responsibility. And often these men, because of their close access to the king, would also be the king's close confidants because they were always there and they were very, very trusted people by the king because they had to ensure that the quality of the food and drink was great and nothing was tampered with either. And what the text tells us is that these men committed an offense against the king. Or more literally translated, they sinned against the king is what the Hebrew says. So it's quite possible that there was some sort of an attempt at poisoning the king somehow. And who is ultimately responsible with such things? The cupbearer and the baker. So perhaps there was an attempt at it or perhaps the king got even a bit sick about it or something of the sort. And ultimately then, either the cupbearer or the baker is responsible for it. Because they're the ones who had to ensure none of that would take place. So at least one of these men are guilty. And so now the king is angry with them and Obviously, it might take some time to investigate and figure out who is ultimately responsible. So here's what the king does. Verse 3. And he, that's the king, Pharaoh, put them, the cupbearer and the baker, in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them And he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. Again, time is moving. So Pharaoh, he puts these two officials into the same prison as Joseph. And they're put under the custody of the captain of the guard. Now let me ask you, who's the captain of the guard? It's Potiphar, isn't it? We saw it last week. Genesis 39.1 And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So the prison is in Potiphar's house somewhere. Now maybe it was a dungeon or a basement prison type of thing. Something of the sort. 
So Joseph has been in this prison in Potiphar's house for these many years. And now it is Potiphar himself who appoints Joseph to attend to these high-ranking officials who've come into prison. Why? Why does Potiphar do that? Because again, you need a person of proven character to make sure that he actually takes care of these high-ranking officials. And he also has to be somebody who's extremely trusted so that he's not going to now round up a coup with these prisoners. And Potiphar has given that care to Joseph. And again, I would say this also shows that Potiphar still has confidence in Joseph. The same reason why Potiphar didn't kill Joseph in the first place for what he was accused of in Genesis 39. And, and it says they continued in custody for some time. Now I want you to think through what has happened so far of how God has been sovereignly and providentially working. Because every instance that has taken place so far, God has sovereignly ordained. Joseph being sinfully favored by his father. And then God sending Joseph the dreams that he would rule over his family. And then his brothers being jealous of the dream and his father's favoring. All of that God had sovereignly ordained. That his brothers would sell him as a slave and that he would come to Egypt. God had sovereignly ordained. That he would be bought as a slave by Potiphar, the captain of the guard of Pharaoh, and that he would become Pharaoh's right, pardon me, Potiphar's right hand man was sovereignly ordained by God. The incident with Potiphar's wife and Joseph being falsely accused and then thrown into prison in Potiphar's dungeon sort of prison was sovereignly ordained by God. The incident with Pharaoh and the cupbearer and the baker, resulting in both of them being thrown into the same prison that Joseph was in at the same time when Joseph was there, and that Joseph would be given charge to take care of these two officials, was sovereignly ordained by God. And as we will see in this chapter in a little bit, the dreams that the cupbearer and the baker will have, and Joseph's ability to interpret those dreams, and everything that results from that was also all sovereignly ordained by God. See, God is working out his plan through all this, and he has sovereignly ordained these things. The various circumstances and the actions of people, including the sinful actions of people, God had ordained it in the life of Joseph. And through it all, God is sovereignly bringing about his wise and loving purposes. And it's the same for you and me. 
where God is sovereignly ordaining everything in your life and my life, and he's bringing about his wise and loving purposes through it. You know, some Christians, in a bid to protect God, you know, to save him from bad rep, so to speak, when things go bad, they will say things like, oh, you know, God didn't ordain that calamity or, or that difficult circumstance or trial in your life. That, that just happened. And usually, if you get down to the thinking of, a, of such a person, it goes something like this. God is in control of all the good things that happen in your life. But if God is in full control of all the bad things that happen in your life, then won't God be sinful? So that's why they want to try and save God. But I want us to look at what the Bible says about God's sovereignty. I'm just going to read uh, quite a few verses. Because I want you to see it from Scripture, what Scripture says. Deuteronomy 32:39 See now that I this is God speaking even I am he and there is no god beside me I kill and I make alive I wound and I heal and there is none that can deliver out of my hand 1 Samuel 2:6 to 8 the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. Isaiah 45, 6 and 7. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fail to the ground apart from your father. Again, talking about God's sovereignty even in little things like sparrows dying and falling to the ground. And then God's sovereignty even over the affairs of man. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 16.9 The heart of man plans his way, but it is the Lord that establishes his steps. I mean, there are many more passages, but the, but the Bible is clear. God is the one who is in sovereign control of everything. He sovereignly ordains everything in this world. Everything in your life and my life, including all the trials and the difficulties and even the wicked things that happen in our life, even though God is not evil and he does not do anything evil. 
Brothers and sisters, this understanding of God's sovereignty over everything in our lives, it should calm our hearts when they are troubled. Because imagine if God didn't sovereignly ordain those bad things in your life and my life, and they're just simply randomly happening, or there is something outside of God's sovereignty that is bringing it about, then can we ever have any hope? Because God is sovereign over these things, and all these bad things that are happening, it's all outside of his control, and it's just happening. How can we have any hope? But it is precisely because God has sovereignly ordained everything in our life. As believers, we can take comfort. If you are a Christian, that means that no matter what situation you find yourself in, no matter how unjustly you have been treated, no matter how painful and difficult your circumstance, you can rest assured that you are exactly where God wants you to be. You will never fall outside of God's wise and loving plans. Yes, you may not understand all the intricacies of why it is happening, but it is a comforting truth to know that you will not fall outside of his loving and sovereign and wise hands. And that should be a comfort for every believer. So that's what we see God doing in the imprisonment of the officials and how they're coming into the same prison as Joseph was in and how he's put in charge of them and how he came there and so on and so forth. This brings us now to the dreams of the officials in verses 5 through to 19. Verse 5 reads, And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison. Each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. Again, we see God's sovereign hand at play, both officials having dreams on the same night. You know, it seems like it's just so happened, you know, just so happened all these things are happening, but we know God is sovereignly ordaining all these things. Verse 6, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. I mean, this is remarkable to see how Joseph is responding even while he himself is afflicted and in prison. It's been at least a few years since Joseph has been in prison for something he didn't do. But what you see is that Joseph is not self-focused. He's not filled with self-pity. 
He's actually focused on others, even in his affliction. I mean, so much so that he notices that these officials are troubled and he's compassionate enough to go and ask them, why? Why are you so troubled? See, in those days in Egypt, dreams were a, a big thing. They were thought to determine the future. And so they would have these professionals in Egypt and later even in Babylon, it was the same thing during the time of Daniel, where they would have these professionals who would interpret dreams. In fact, if some of those dreams came true, then you know, whatever was said, they would write it down in a book and they would have this big book. And so later on, some of these specialists in interpreting dreams would use this big book and you know, try and interpret what this new dream is all about. But then later in, in Deuteronomy 13 verses 1 to 5, the Israelites would be told to avoid such professional dream interpreters because you know, what they're practicing is false religion. Think of it kind of like astrology these days. You know, some of what they say, the astrologers say, might come true. Why? Well, it's like a broken clock, right? It can tell the correct time two times in a day. And so sometimes when these people say things, they, they come true. But then other times it doesn't come true. Because they don't really know what's happening in the future. So at this time, these officials, they're troubled because they know they have these dreams and they're thinking it has something to do with their future, but they don't have access to these special dream interpreters. Now Joseph was jaded with his whole situation and all the troubles and the affliction that he had. You know, when he heard dreams, I would almost think of it as a, a trigger word. Be like, dreams? Yeah, I had a couple of dreams many years ago. And it got me into so much trouble. And finally, that's how I ended up here. And it's never come true to this day. I'm sorry, I can't help you. Too bad for you. That's not what Joseph says. Look at how Joseph responds. Second half of verse 8. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. See, Joseph is still trusting the Lord. In fact, by saying, Do not interpretations belong to God, he's essentially saying, doesn't the future belong to the sovereign God? Doesn't he hold the future? And so because he holds the future, he knows the future, only he can give the interpretation about anything with regards to the future. And Joseph is trusting God and trusting that God will give him the interpretation of dreams like God gave him many years ago. 
So we could even say, as a side note, that Joseph is still trusting that his dreams too will come true at some point. Because otherwise he wouldn't be acting like this. What is Joseph doing here? In his affliction, he is bearing testimony to God in front of these two officials. Things haven't changed for Joseph, but he is bearing testimony to God, saying, I'm continuing to trust in God. He's the one who holds the future in our hands. Let me tell you about him. And so because he's compassionate and he takes notice of these officials and tells them that from the Lord you will have the right interpretation, so now the officials speak. First the cupbearer, verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me. And on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. So when Joseph says in three days Pharaoh will lift your head, that's a figurative way of saying that Pharaoh will show you favor. Meaning, you know, you go before the king, you bow down like this, and he will lift your head. He will show you favor. And he will show you this favor in three days and he will restore you to your former office and your former duties as the king's cupbearer. Now in light of this, Joseph makes a request. Verse 14. Only remember me when it is well with you. I love that. It doesn't say perhaps when or if it goes well with you. He says, only remember me when it is well with you. Because Joseph is so confident that God will bring about what he has ordained in the dream. There's no uncertainty there. He says, no, when it is well with you, this is a certainty, then please remember me and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this mess. Why? He gives reason, verse 15, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. A couple of things to note here. Joseph calls this dungeon prison of sorts as the pit. It's the same word that was used of the pit that he was thrown into by his brothers. So I would think most likely this would have been not a fancy prison. It would have been a bad, a horrible prison, a difficult to place to be in. And he's been in this place for quite a few years now. 
And so Joseph then proclaims his innocence saying, hey, I, I, I was stolen from my land, the land of Hebrews. And I was unjustly then put even in this prison. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't indict his brothers. Oh, those were all, you know, those rotten brothers of mine. It's because of what they did. He doesn't even indict Potiphar's wife. And what this shows is Joseph, he doesn't have any bitterness to those who've wronged him. He's not holding any grudges. God is clearly doing a work in Joseph's life. You know, some commentators have said that, you know, Joseph, by asking for help from this official, he's not trusting God. I don't think that's a fair statement. Yes, Joseph does believe that God is sovereign and that God will deliver him someday, but he also understands that God uses means to accomplish his sovereign plan and purposes. So he's asking the cupbearer a favor to see if it's the cupbearer who will be the means by which God will deliver him. I mean, it's like going to the doctors, right, when we are sick? No, if we go to the doctors when we are sick, that's not because we're not trusting God. No, we're trusting God and we're going to the doctors because we're trusting that God has ordained doctors to the means to provide medical care for us. And so Joseph is fully trusting God, gives the interpretation of the dream to the cupbearer, now asks him a favor as well to see if he would be the means by which God would bring about his deliverance. Now verse 16. When the cupbearer saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. Now I suspect, you know, the cupbearer being the innocent guy, he didn't hold back when Joseph asked him about the dream. Yes, he was anxious to know, but he's like, okay, I just want to know what's going to happen. But the baker, being the guilty one, he held back because he knew he was guilty. So he's, he's stepping back. Now he's listened to what Joseph has said with regards to the cupbearer. And now he's thinking, oh, Joseph gives good interpretations to dreams. So maybe mine will be favorable too. So now he comes forward And he says, I also had a dream and let me tell you about it. So then the cupbearer says, I also had a dream and there were three cakes on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. I mean, the baker is clearly not doing his job properly. The birds are eating out of the basket. That same basket that's meant to go to Pharaoh. And so verse 18, and Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. 
So Joseph says to the baker, in three days, your head will be lifted up, not in favor, but in a negative sense, where it'll be lifted off from you. Or in other words, you will be beheaded. And then you will be hung on a tree, or from a tree, or maybe even impaled on a tree. It could mean either. And why would the king do that? Because the hanging or the impaling of people who are dead and to just keep them was to publicly shame and to warn of what would happen to anyone who dared to come against the king. That's why such a public spectacle would be made of criminals. Or in other words, the baker was the guilty one. You know, Joseph gave the bad news and the good news. He was faithful. Just think about this. If the baker was the guilty one, he could have even tried to harm Joseph, right? He could have done harm to Joseph, but Joseph doesn't hold back from telling both of them whatever God had revealed. Why? Again, because he is trusting God. And he's not fearing man. See, in this whole section, what we see is Joseph is fully trusting in God and his sovereignty to bring about what he has said. He doesn't have a fatalistic understanding of God's sovereignty. He doesn't say, oh, well, if God is sovereign over everything, then it doesn't matter what I do or say. He doesn't say things like, oh, so I don't need to honor God or rely on him. Or I don't need to seek out help from others. Or I can just be focused on myself. Because why? Because God is sovereign and he will do what he will do. No, Joseph didn't become fatalistic or even cynical with regards to God's sovereignty. In fact, Joseph was growing in his confidence and his faith in the Lord because he knew that God was sovereign. And if you're thinking, how is it that Joseph is able to do that despite his ongoing suffering? Maybe the words of the hymn writer uh, William Cooper, his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, uh, will shed some light for us. One of the verses of the song says this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. See, what Joseph is doing here, he's not trusting his senses. He's not trusting his feelings or what he's seeing around him. He's not focused on how he was mistreated, how he has been in Egypt for all this while or in prison all this while. But he's trusting in the Lord. He's not trusting in his senses and judging the Lord. But he's trusting the Lord, trusting the Lord that he knows who is true. True. 
He's trusting the Lord who's sovereignly bringing about his wise and loving plans. And because Joseph is so controlled by that fact of who God is and what God is doing, he uses the opportunities that he gets, even in his affliction, to witness to God. And which is why he was so sensitive to the imprisoned officials. Even when he was being mistreated and he was there for no reason. You know, as Christians, suffering gives us one of the greatest opportunities to share our faith. See, when we go through suffering and pain and we understand that God is in all this and we understand what he is doing, that he has sovereignly ordained it for his wise purposes and loving purposes and we don't become bitter and we respond in a way that honors God, that's not natural. That's supernatural and it serves as a powerful witness to this dark unbelieving world see God honoring responses to the suffering provides us with the greatest opportunities to share the gospel and the reason for our hope I mean one Modern day example is someone like Joni Erickson Tada. I mean, she was a 17 or 18 year old young woman. You know, whole life in front of her, and she has a diving board accident as she's jumping into the pool, and then she becomes a quadriplegic for life. Now, you would think someone like that. You know, how a quadriplegic can't move her hands, can't move her legs, cannot walk. She's bound to a wheelchair. And yet, through that suffering, God worked in her life. And now she is a megaphone pointing to the great Savior always. She's got a massive worldwide ministry for those who have physical ailments. And so many people have come to know the Lord through her. Suffering Christian provides us with one of the greatest opportunities to share our faith. Because when the world looks at a person acting in such an otherworldly way, they can't understand it. And then we can give the reason for our hope, the reason for our joy, the reason for our stability, even during those crushing times. And we don't know what God will do with that witness and how God will draw people to himself that way.
Well, in the case of Joseph, because he honored God and used that opportunity to point back to God, ultimately, when you follow the chain of events, it led to the salvation of the world. So many people getting saved. So God sovereignly ordains everything, the good and the bad. But that should not give us a fatalistic understanding of his sovereignty. No, it should deepen our confidence in him. And it also provides us, by God's grace, with the greatest opportunity in our suffering to witness to him. And that brings us finally to the fulfillment of the official's dreams in verses 20 to 23. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the cup, chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. So it's Pharaoh's birthday, big celebration. And it's usually at such joyous celebrations where prisoners are released, officials are reinstated, and so on. So on Pharaoh's birthday, he singles out two of his prisoners, the cupbearer and the baker. You know, he would have had enough time now to investigate and come to his own conclusions as to who was innocent and who was guilty. So verse 21, it says, He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in the Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Everything that Joseph had said came true, including the fact that all of this is going to happen in three days. I mean, this would have been a personal encouragement to Joseph to believe, now, okay, if this has happened and this dream that God has revealed, it has come to fruition, it would have been further encouragement personally to Joseph who believed that one day God also would make those dreams of his come true that God had brought to him. And then lastly, verse 23, it says, Yet, the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. I mean, the text is so emphatic. It would have been enough just to say the cupbearer did not remember him. But just to sort of emphasize the point, he says, did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. I mean, think about this. The, the news about the cupbearer being reinstated would have brought Joseph's hopes up. Oh, you know, the time for my release from this pit, from this dungeon, from this prison, after so many years, is soon. 
You know, surely the cupbearer, now that he's reinstated, he will honor my request. And a few days pass. And no one shows up to deliver him. Days turn to weeks. And weeks to months. And then Joseph realizes there's no help coming from the cupbearer. The cupbearer has forgotten him. Another downturn in Joseph's life. There is no human help for Joseph and he has to remain in prison. And while Joseph doesn't know it, it'll be another two years before he is released from prison, as we will see in the next chapter. Joseph is totally forgotten by men. But I want to say this also. But God had not forgotten Joseph. Because God was working out his wise and loving plans in Joseph's life in his perfect time. So what is God doing in all this? As Joseph is enduring so much of affliction, going through so much pain, Well, for starters, God was changing and building Joseph's character. Romans 5, 3-5 says this, Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. See how Joseph's character has changed. Perhaps think of just two scenes. When he was younger, you know, his father loved him and proof of that was that special coat that he had. But what did he do with that coat? He flaunted that coat, right? Like he would have that coat anywhere and everywhere he went. He knows that his father shouldn't be favoring him like this over his brothers. And his brothers are already troubled. He's not particularly compassionate toward others that time, is he? And then to add salt into the wound when he has those dreams that he would one day rule over his family... He just goes out and excitedly tells that to his brothers and everyone around, knowing that they're already struggling. Not particularly compassionate, is it? What about now? As Joseph has been going through so much of affliction. So many years of it. He's becoming compassionate. He's becoming more caring. See, to the, to the two prisoners that were there, the two officials, if he didn't have that compassionate heart, if he, was not, if he was just simply jaded, he would have never noticed that they had downcast faces. 
But God was doing a work. He was building his character. God was refining and molding Joseph to become more useful, to become more of a blessing to others, and to shine forth more and more of his character, to be a better witness. You could even say, even as we know that God, as God was turning evil to good, there's a sense in which he was doing that personally with Joseph as well. He's turning Joseph inside out. What else is God doing? Well, people in his life have forsaken him. And it's been disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And what is God teaching him? To rely on God and not to trust in man ultimately. To not put your trust in kings and princes, but in the Lord. To not trust even in his own abilities, but to continue to trust the Lord. He was deepening his faith. What else was God doing? Well, God was orchestrating all these events to ultimately deliver Joseph and to fulfill his promises to him and his promises to the rest of mankind. Let me say this. The cupbearer forgetting Joseph that was because God had ordained it and precisely because God hadn't forgotten Joseph. Let me say that again or put it the other way. It is precisely because God hadn't forgotten Joseph, the cupbearer forgot Joseph. You say, why? Because think about this. If the cupbearer had remembered Joseph, and he went to Pharaoh and said, hey, Pharaoh, you need to look at this guy you know, he's had a tough life and he's been falsely accused and all these things have happened and he's the one who rightly interpreted these dreams. Would you please look into it and perhaps, you know, be merciful to him? And let's say Pharaoh released him from prison at that time. He's still a slave. And maybe he'll go out to work in the fields or somebody else's house or whatever. But you see, it's because God hadn't forgotten Joseph. The cupbearer forgot Joseph. Because it'll take another two years where God's going to refine this man more, where he's more reliant on him, where he's trusting in him even more, where the things of this world have become so dim in, for him. 
And he's become a very useful man because where God is taking him, he's going to be the leader or the second in command, so to speak, of the most powerful pagan nation in the world at the time. And as one commentator said, he would have many, many temptations that would come his way. You know, many Potiphar's, he's such an influential, you know, nice guy and does what is good for people. He's going to have many, many Potiphar wife-like women his way. Many other temptations that will come as he's in that position. And God is being good to him. And not only that, not only that he's refining him and making him into that character, it's because he waits another two, two years. And Pharaoh then has the dream. Then the cupbearer remembers Joseph because nobody else in the land can interpret the dream. And then he comes into Pharaoh's presence and then Pharaoh says, you're going to be my right-hand man. And what's going to happen after that? He's going to, through that dream, God is going to work such that he is going to save his family. He's going to save the people of Egypt and lots of other people. The cupbearer forgot Joseph precisely because God had not forgotten him. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that God has not forgotten any of his children. He never forgets his children. In fact, when we think of the thief on the cross, the penitent thief, we all once stood guilty before God. We all deserved the death sentence of the baker because we were truly guilty. But even as the penitent thief cried out to Jesus saying, remember me. That is what has happened in our life. Where we cried out to the Lord Jesus and he remembered us and he saved us. And if God has shown how he has remembered us in and through his son, should we ever doubt that he doesn't remember us right now? Friend, if there's anyone here who is not a Christian, let me tell you by what the Bible says. You stand guilty before God because you are in your sin. You cannot save yourself. You cannot turn to any other thing or any other person to save you. And as you stand guilty before God in your sin, you will be judged and you will be thrown into the lake of fire and you will bear the eternal judgment of God for the rest of eternity. I say this because this is what God's word says but also understand that God is a merciful God 
and a loving God and a gracious God. While there is still time, you can turn to the Lord Jesus, the one who is the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, who took the form of a man and he came and he lived a perfect life and he died on that cross for sinful people like you and me. Oh, the love of God that is displayed on the cross. Because the person you would call to say, remember me, is the person who was punished and judged and killed. Friend, I would ask you to, if you see who the Lord Jesus is and what he has done, then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from your sin. And if you say you truly believe, then I would say continue to turn away from your sin and continue to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because that is an evidence that you continue to believe in him. Just as what Joseph told the baker and the cupbearer is true, so what I say to you right now is true. But for those of us who are Christians, maybe you are going through a difficult trial right now, going through some pain right now. I don't know if you will have deliverance from that trial on this side of earth, but I can tell you this, ultimately God will deliver you. He has not forgotten you. He has sovereignly ordained it in your life. He's working out his wise and loving purposes. He's molding you. He's shaping you. And ultimately, he's drawing you to himself. I want to end this morning with a quote from D.A. Carson's excellent book on suffering called How Long, O Lord? And he says this, What is clear is that it is in extremity that many Christians drink most deeply of the grace of God and they revel in his presence and glory in whatever it is, suffering included. That has brought them this heightened awareness of the majesty of God. That's what God is doing. To bring you to a heightened awareness of his glories and his excellencies. so that our joy would be full and we would continue to trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are God and we are not. But we thank you for the wise God you are, the sovereign God you are, for the good God you are. 
And we thank you that you, are, you have ordained everything in this world. That you are working out your wise and loving purposes on a global scale and on, on an individual, personal, our own individual life level as well. We thank you for this. Help us, Lord, to continue to grow in our trust in you as we see who you are. Yes, there are things we do not understand about you. There are things we don't understand, especially when we have pain and suffering and it is ongoing and there is no end to it. Yet, Lord, we thank you because we know your word says that it is still from your loving hand. We thank you for the way that you have purposed all things in our lives because we know that ultimately it is for your glory and our good. Help us to be your faithful follower and help us to continue to rely on you and be your shining testimonies on this earth. For this is our great joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name.